0: I noticed that on the bulletin, this is called Exposition of God's Word. I hope that's a pretty big thing to be measuring up to, isn't it? Exposition of God's Word. Um, well, let's just open with a short prayer before we get started here. Huh, Lord, we just honor you. We've, we're so grateful to be here today. We're just are blessed by the freedoms that we enjoy and that only you can provide, we just ask your presence with us, and I pray that you'll guide my speaking today, and that, uh, that whatever is true will sink into the hearts of everyone here, and what is not true will, will just disappear into the universe somewhere. Thank you, Father, for all the blessings we enjoy. Please be with us today, in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. If you notice that um, there's not a real title to this sermon today. It just says James chapter 1, verses 2 and 3. And I'm sure that there are dozens of verses that I could have picked to start off with. But I don't know if you remember James 1, 2, and 3. It says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. So I'm going to talk about some of the trials I think that we experience as people in modern America today. And this is not going to be an exegeted sermon. Um Anthony, for example, when when Zach preaches to us, he, he covers at the max three verses. No, that's not right. Sometimes <laughs> sometimes he gets carried away and he could do fifteen or twenty. But but I mean he digs down, you know, verse by verse and, and informs us what's hidden away in there. This is not that type of sermon. I'm sure you've all heard the phrase, preaching to the choir. And you all know what it's suggesting. This sermon is largely me preaching to myself. But if you're stirred up by it, we should get together and talk about it and pray about it some. I need to preach to myself because I must confess to being a lukewarm Christian. What does that mean? In Revelation chapter 2, we read a description of seven churches representing the full spectrum of churches throughout history. One of them is described as a lukewarm church. And to my dismay, it makes me really question if, by extension, I am a lukewarm Christian. Perhaps I'm the only one here who deservedly experiences these self-incriminations. Are there solutions to these shortcomings? Well, if you have a sense of not ever serving God, as you should, maybe we should compare notes. I sometimes joke half-heartedly that my life verse is First Thessalonians 4.11. Perhaps you know it. It says, part one, make it your ambition to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business, and to work with your hands. I like part one. <laughs> this quiet life withdrawn from the worries of the world. But part two goes on, that you may walk properly toward those who are outside, and that you may lack nothing. In other words, we are not to be totally withdrawn from the world, but to be involved and be aware of the pitfalls outside. James 1.27 says, pure and undefiled religion before God and the Father is this to visit orphans and widows in their distress, and to keep oneself untainted from the world. That's a tall order, isn't it? Should we become, in a sense, like the Amish, and be what just exists and content in our own little world, rejectors of certain modern advantages in our labor, and let the world pass us by? Should we intentionally withdraw from the world and its corrupt and flawed practices? Perhaps like the Anabaptists, like those who do not participate in civil government. Sometimes it's tempting to think they're on the right track, isn't it? Do we as Reformed people who believe that God is in charge of every molecule in the universe, including, of course, every human life, do we also believe the corollary, as chapter Romans 13 says, that he has appointed the authorities that exist and rule over us, that in fact he has decreed it. If so, for example, what is our response to the authorities who condone or even support abortion? Surely God gives us the right, even expects us, to stand against such as this. If there is a caveat in the command to obey the authorities, it may be in the phrase in verse 3, quote, For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to evil. And in verse 7, For he is a minister to you for good, not for evil. So here's a rhetorical question for you. If he, the ruler, the government, is doing evil, Not good, must we obey him? Did Dietrich Bonhoeffer obey Hitler? What about the recent court cases in Colorado and in, or excuse me, in Canada and in Oregon, in which fathers have been jailed for refusing to allow their 15 or 16 year old daughters to undergo court enforced sex change operations? Are we to meekly ignore, for example, that many public schools financed by our tax dollars are all too ready to embrace and advance the very sexual standards that the Bible condemns? For example, to dispense birth control pills to young teenage girls upon request. Here's the problem. Do we need to strike a balance between disassociation with the world and the command to go into all the world making disciples of all nations? Again, chapter Romans chapter 13 says, Submit to government authority. But perhaps first we need to correctly understand the context and then submit to scripture. For example, in Acts chapter 5, the apostles were jailed for preaching Jesus. An angel released them from jail in the night. When recaptured while preaching again the next day, they answered the authorities by saying, quote, we ought to obey God rather than men. Now, it's interesting that the penalty that they were possibly facing was death. Luckily, we don't live in a situation that's that dire. That dire. But returning to Romans chapter 13, verse 7, we read, Render fear to whom fear is due. Again, the authorities in that day were given the power of the sword. This verse reminds me of a short section in a book, which I uh, actually, Margie, picked it up. She was, I think, rummaging through a bookstore one day years ago. and, And the title of it was called The Reformers and Their Stepchildren. And you read the title and I thought, now who's that talking about? Oh, probably the Reformers and then maybe the next generation of Reformers, something like that. But that's not the case. The the stepchildren referred to in in this instance were uh, basically what we would think of as Anabaptists today. That they were outside of the mainline church, whatever it was existing in those early centuries of the church. And they were always against a central, you know, that the government and the church are one and the same. And so that they refused to abide by the rules of, of the government that would impose uh, on them what they could or could not do. Anyway, this book is called The Reformers and Their Stepchildren. It was released in 1964, written by a man named Leonard Verduin. He was a graduate of Calvin Theological Seminary. He pastored the campus chapel at the University of Michigan for 20 years. Speaking of rendering fear to whom fear is due, a short section of his book describes what may be an aberration of this truth. It describes a Roman emperor by the name of Decius who ruled from A.D. 249 to 251, in a time when the golden days of Rome were fading. And the citizens were gradually turning away from the ancient gods and embracing what would eventually become the Roman Catholic Church, with its emphasis on the sacrament of communion and its provision of salvation. Decius basically co-opted and adapted the old Roman concepts of sacrificing to the gods by substituting what would eventually become the sacrifice of the mass thus making the Christian partaking of communion a more acceptable manner of declaring loyalty to himself, the Roman emperor. I want to read you just a a brief quote here. This was the actual wording that those citizens living under Decius had to go through. It says, Decius invented the following scheme. Every household... Householder was instructed to procure an affidavit attesting to loyalty to and recent participation in the ancient religious be- behavior vis-a-vis the object. The object being whatever was the, the popular thing that you're supposed to be worshiping at the time. It read, I, so-and-so, have always sacrificed to the gods, and now in your presence, I have, in keeping with the directive, sacrificed and have caused a libation to be poured out, have tasted of the sacrificial victim, and I request that you, a public notary, certify the same. Then, when a house-to-house checkup was conducted, the offenders were spotted. If a man was unable to clear himself, the failure to produce the required billet was prima facie evidence of infidelity to the object, infidelity that was punishable with death. In this way, Decius not only hoped to inject a little life into the dying religiosity of the empire by bringing the rank and file into the temples once again, but he was also, wel- he also welcomed the spotting of the Christians. His concern was not so much a religious concern as one which we would today call a political concern. It is well to keep this remark in mind, for we shall come face to face with this situation often in this study. So you can see what those people we're up against it in those days. Um, let's see now. Where what? Let me get back to my notes here. Now here here we go. Perhaps we see in the, the or, or we saw the beginning of a similar process in this country with the advent of political correctness which has now advanced to the point at which the state has ultimate control over your children, your children's health. Now, it's it's granted that our our times are not as dire as these times that I was discussing with you. But how are we to interpret and apply rendering fear to whom fear is due? The very next line in chapter 13 gives the answer. It's verse 8. It says, Give no one, owe no one anything except to love one another. For he who loves another has fulfilled the law. This is possibly saying, love your oppressor. Who of us is willing or able to do this? To love the person who would turn your world upside down. Even in my brokenness, I am afraid that I despise what so much of the world erroneously preaches as goodness and truth. But I do nothing about it. Then I read Romans 5, verses 3-8. Not only that, but we glory in tribulations. Knowing that tribulation produces perseverance, and perseverance character, and character hope. Now hope does not disappoint, because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit, who was given to us. For when we were still without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a scarcely for a righteous man will one die. Yet, perhaps for a good man, someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. But we, if we are lukewarm, seem to have a fear or even an embarrassment that prevents us from simply witnessing to an unbeliever who might ridicule or rebuke us. Even while we do understand that he or she may well be among God's elect. John fifteen eighteen and 19. This is Jesus speaking. If the world hates you, you know that it hated me first. Before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. Maybe we should ask ourselves. Does the world hate me as an individual because I challenge their values, or does the world merely see me as that crazy, confused Christian who wastes a perfectly good day off by going to church? James 4.4 Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever, therefore, wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. It's an interesting dilemma, isn't it? Love your neighbor, but don't befriend the world. How do we, how do we strike that balance? I have often wondered which, if any, of the seven churches in chapter two of the Revelation we are, or most resemble. In the Revelation's list of seven churches, only two of them receive commendation by the Lord and no criticism. At the other end of the spectrum, only one receives no commendation and is criticized for being indifferent, that is, lukewarm. Philadelphia and Smyrna were the faithful churches which persevered in the faith, kept the word of God, and honored his name, and graciously bore suffering. suffering, suffering, suffering. Laodicea was neither hot nor cold and God would vomit it out of his mouth. That's Revelation 3.16. Where are we in that spectrum as a church? I would urge us individually and corporately to think seriously about where we stand on the spectrum of faith. Changing gears somewhat at this point, I would like to bring up a subject that I am reminded of almost every Sunday. And that subject has to do with Praying for the local churches. It's almost always on our prayer list. Of course, the area's Christian schools are referenced, and I have, but I have questions, and I am frankly skeptical about praying for the public schools. How are we to pray for them? In fact, maybe we should be praying against them, as they are now constituted. For clarification, and by way of transparency, As most of you would know, Margie taught school for what? 30 how many years, Margie? Pardon me? 33. Taught in the public schools. So here I am, coming down on the public schools. (laughs) Um, By the end of that time, she was greatly disturbed by the things being taught, even in grade school. Now more and more each year they teach a religion of humanism and evolution and even pay lip service to objecting and they don't excuse me they don't even pay lip service to objecting to many others for example the lgbtq etc movement as an example Probably a year or more ago, I wrote a column in Carbondale's Soper Sun newspaper challenging the middle school's endorsement of a supposedly student led march and parade down Main Street in support of the LGBTQ demands. The next issue of the paper included a letter of rebuttal to my column, which referred to me as a bigot. I looked up the definition of bigot. And to my relief, discovered, I'm not one. (laughs) Quote, a person who is obstinately or unreasonably added to a, wedded to a particular church or religious creed, opinion, practice, or rituals. Now, if the Bible were unreasonable, only then would the accusation apply. But I think since my opinions are based on the Bible, I'm not a bigot. They aren't unreasonable. But the world will fight back. Of course, there is a range of religion-based schools. Largely Roman Catholic, some Jewish in the larger cities, Protestant here and there, all of whose parents pay tuition in addition to their school taxes. On the other hand, to offset this, should we advocate for prayer in public schools? I think not. Who of us, for example, if the shoe were on the other foot, would want our children to be in a school even tacitly based on Buddhism or Unitarianism, for example, or any other brand of religion other than our own? If I'm not mistaken, still today in Sweden, there is a universal tax that goes to support a state church. In this case, the Lutheran church. In Sweden, a child becomes a Lutheran at birth, but active participation is not required. What a farce. Talk about lukewarm. We could have all kinds of conversations about a process such as this. So what are Reformed Christians in the tradition of true evangelicalism to do? I say true evangelicalism Because in America today, Evangelical seems to be, as they say, a mile wide and only a foot deep. Even the PCA is apparently struggling with the intrusion of modern American mores into its doctrine. But there's nothing new under the sun. Ahaz in Israel practiced child sacrifice. Ahaz was David's son He reigned as a king in Judah for 16 years. Quote, How did you not do what was right in the sight of the Lord? He burned his children in the fire, according to the abominations of the nations whom the Lord had cast out before the children of Israel. Now, in modern America, we do the same type of thing by worshipping our right to autonomy, convenience, sexual license, and rejection of God. The early church was persecuted by their own people, the Jews, for their brave testimony of Jesus as Lord and God. We, in our society, are tolerated and viewed as ignorant or simple as long as we keep it to ourselves. But what about when we try to apply our beliefs to perhaps the most heinous of sins, child sacrifice. Probably 30 or 35 years ago, Margie and I were part of a local chapter of Colorado Right to Life. Sadly, we didn't accomplish very much. Mind you that this was at a time when abortion was not as entrenched as it is now. At any rate, I know of and contacted a man I had heard of in Denver. His name was Tom Longua. He had been the president, if I remember correctly, of Colorado Right to Life. He was more than willing to come to Redstone, where we were going to church at the time, have an evening and give a presentation to the church and community on some upcoming political issues concerning abortion. We advertised the event in the local paper and on KDNK radio for several weeks. Tom arrived with armloads of flyers and anti-abortion information and was ready to take on all comers. Probably five or six people showed up, only two of whom were from the church. Even the pastor didn't come. It was a giant disappointment. I'd like to relate the story of what Tom did before he returned to Denver. He brought with him a framed message to leave with us as a gift. It says, to educate men wisely, we must know what we educate them to become. To know this, it is necessary to ask what men live for. To ask that is, what can be the purpose of life and what sort of life it should be? I think we all know the answer. It's Article 1 in the Westminster Confession. What is the chief end of man? To glorify God and enjoy Him forever. That's the purpose of education. Um, I don't know where that quote came from. I did stumble into it one other time and I did not have the sense to write down who the author was. But uh, anyway, I've always, I've always remembered this man, Tom Longway, because of that wonderful gift that he gave us. We have, I, I ran off a copy of the Westminster Confession and of this plaque and gave it to our daughter Molly. So she has two of these hanging on her wall to remind her. Why she homeschooling her kids? All too sadly, this past week, in the latest World Magazine issue, the main story describes the latest atrocities in and by the pro-abortion movement. The gist of it is that to be simply pro-choice is no longer enough. Now one must celebrate and find joy and happiness and fulfillment through abortion. Euphemisms like reproductive health, right to choose, access to care, are no longer adequate. Today's movement has as its goal to eliminate the post-abortive regrets of many women who learned the truth about abortion too late. I don't know if you're all familiar with World Magazine. It's like a time or Newsweek, but it's written from a Christian perspective. And I've just got a couple of highlighted things to give you an example of what is becoming the new norm from their point of view. There's a group called Shout Your Abortion, S-Y-A, an organization with a website where women can post their abortion stories and buy Congratulations on your abortion note cards and thank God for abortion baby onesies, whatever a onesie is. And here's a story about a woman named Viva Ruiz. In 2015, Viva Ruiz launched Thank God for Abortion, an art collective that promotes Thank God for Abortion t-shirts. It also develops videos and costumes promoting the philosophy behind that phrase, that God thinks abortions are good and wants people to have them. Ruiz said it is a blasphemy to force childbirth on a person, adding, Abortion is about self-love and is actually sacred. Ruiz, a self-proclaimed Catholic who often dons a cross necklace and incorporates Christian symbols into her work, told a Jezebel reporter, that people who have had abortions are more holy, and that abortion providers are doing Jesus' work. Their power is growing in some abortion circles. It is no longer enough to be pro-choice at Planned Parenthood. It's now necessary to be pro-abortion, as former Planned Parenthood president Dr. Liana Nguyen learned. When learned that radical abortion advocacy demands acceptance, groups like SYA and We Testify are bold in their safe spaces, but they aren't willing to talk to those who disagree with them. By the way, this lady that was the president of National Rights Life, right to life um, of uh, Planned, Parenthood, Planned Parenthood was forced out of office. She wasn't radical enough. This The author, the reporter of this column, says, I contacted, thank God for abortion. We testify and shout your abortion to request interviews. Thank God for abortion did not respond. Both we testify and shout your abortion declined. Shout your abortion did so by suggesting the 12th of never as a possible date for an interview. When I pressed both to reconsider, they sent incendiary email responses accusing me of not respecting people's decisions by asking multiple times. But S.Y.A.'s Bono said she was not surprised, I asked again, since your position is rooted in trying to enforce your will on others without their consent. At the end of the message, she told me, If I ever needed an abortion in the future... I hope you know that there's a whole universe of people out there who don't think you're a bad person. At least not for that. She signed the email in Jesus' name. So that is the mentality that's taking control now. Um. Well, I guess I need to leave it at that, but I just, I wanted you all to be aware of what's going on and the fact that I, I'm kind of ashamed. Not kind of, I am ashamed. I just, I know, I didn't know it was this bad, but I knew things were going on. And yet, what do we do about it? And I don't know if any of you have feelings or if you are active in, in this field or not. But um, we don't want to be lukewarm. And it doesn't have to be this issue. There are lots of things going on in the world that we don't want to be lukewarm in that sense of not combating evil in the world. So if you would join me, I've got just a short prayer and we'll be done here. Father God, in Jesus' name, I ask that you would guide us as individuals and as your gathered church to know your will and the social ills that plague our country. I am embarrassed to even say the words, God bless America, when I consider both the act of rebellion against you by groups teaching and endorsing hellish actions in the public square and the personal lukewarmness of people like me who pay lip service to obedience, and then retreat into their comfort zones. Father, please send your Holy Spirit into churches across the nation and give us hearts to act and minds to be clear and decisive about how to love you and to love our neighbors and our enemies who reject the truths in your Holy Word. Even those who ridicule your name and for their own selfish purposes deny that those tiny children in the womb are people created in your image. Help us to be like the churches in Philadelphia and Smyrna, to be strong in the face of whatever reaction the world gives us, always knowing that our destiny is assuredly in your hands. I ask all this in Christ's name. Amen.